Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church in Hemet, California, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sam Rinehan. Uh, Sam, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much, Joe. Very glad to be, to be joining you. I've uh, asked Sam if he would allow me to interview him on the doctrine of divine impassibility, and some of the listeners might be thinking, well, what in the world is that? I think it it wouldn't be surprising if people haven't heard of this doctrine before, but uh, Sam has, has written a very nice little book on, on the subject, and the title of it is God Without Passions, a Primer, a Practical and Pastoral Study of Divine Impassibility, and it's a really fine book, Sam. I, I, I appreciated uh, reading it. I, I read it quite a while ago, and, and then I've reviewed it in preparation for this interview here. And I think you've you've managed to take a subject that is rather complex, and you've made it very clear. And uh, <clears throat> so we do appreciate that very much, brother. So thank you for writing that book. I'm glad it's been helpful. Yeah, I've, I've, I've mentioned before on this podcast that I, I selfishly choose the subjects to discuss with the saints at Emmaus in mind. Um, my concern is is to address things that I know that um, our folks uh, need to hear. And uh, given that we are moving forward in our desire to join ourselves to the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, I do think it is important for our members to uh, hear some clear teaching on, on this subject, the subject of uh, divine impassibility. Um, this has been a very important topic of conversation with ARBCA over the past couple of years. I've I've actually heard it called a a controversy. I don't know if that word is is too strong, but certainly uh, the churches in Arbka have had to wrestle with this doctrine. Um, Arbka has since adopted a position paper on the subject. Um, it's a paper that I've encouraged our members to look at. It could be found on on their website under resources. Uh, but I think that your book, Sam, and and hopefully this little recording that we're now doing will be helpful for those who really wish to gain a better understanding of this doctrine. Um, but I was thinking, Sam, before we get into the doctrine of divine impassibility, would you take a moment and, and just tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, Sam, I am. <laughs> and I'm a pastor at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church here in La Mirada. I've been a pastor here for about five years, I think a little, a little, just over five years. Before that, I was an intern during my time at Westminster Seminary, California, uh, married to Kimberly, and we have a son, Owen. He's nine. He's in fourth grade. And um, I grew up in Massachusetts, moved out to California when I was 11, lived here ever since. And I'm just really thankful to be in the gospel ministry and to be able to uh, participate in associational life here in our local association as well as in our national one. Yeah, amen. And I know that you recently earned your PhD, and I knew also that you wouldn't say anything about that, so I thought I would. And uh, first of all, I wanted to say congratulations. It's really quite an accomplishment. Um, but would you tell us a bit about that, your PhD work, what it was that you studied, your dissertation, um, so on and so forth? Yeah, thank you. The I graduated just about a month ago from the Free University of Amsterdam, obviously in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And my work was historical theology. So I was looking at our first and second Baptist Confessions of Faith from 1644 and 1677 and looking at the 
the theologians or the men involved with those confessions and asking, okay, what did these men believe about covenant theology? What were the roots of their views on covenant theology? How did they develop? How did they compare and contrast within themselves and in relation to pedo-baptists around them? So it was on the covenant theology of the particular Baptists in the 17th century, really focusing in on the particular Baptists associated with the first and second London Baptist confessions. So it covers about a 60-year period from about 1642 to 1704. And it's it's uh, historical theology, just describing their views, comparing and contrasting them with those in their time. It's not really supposed to be what I think about the topic necessarily, although I certainly agree with much of what they say. And it's, it's just a try, an attempt to broaden our understanding and deepen our understanding of particular Baptist theology in general and their particular Baptist covenant theology in particular. And I'm really excited about it. Lord willing, it'll be published uh, next year, early next year by Regents Park College, Oxford. And I, I really enjoyed working on it. Very thankful to the Lord for making it possible for me to do so. And also very thankful to be finished. <laughs> I bet. We look forward to reading it, Sam. Um, I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting topic. Well, let's dive into the doctrine of divine impassibility then. Um, I wonder if you would begin, Sam, by just simply defining uh, the doctrine of divine impassibility for us. Uh, What is this doctrine all about? Sure. In my study of divine impassibility, I've seen a variety of definitions that are, generally speaking, all very good definitions. But they're sometimes hard to understand. And so I'm going to give you the one that, in my opinion, has been the easiest to state and the easiest to understand. And yet, even saying that, it will take some explanation before we can really understand everything that it means. So the doctrine of divine impassibility defined is this. God is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon by anything either from within himself or outside of himself. God is not acted upon and can't be acted upon by anything either within himself or outside of himself. Okay. And I know that this doctrine is expressed in our confession of faith um, in in chapter uh, 2 and in particular paragraph 1. Would you mind if I read that, Sam? Please. Would it be an okay time to do that? Um, uh, Certainly. Chapter 2 of our confession, paragraph 1, says, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, and so there is that um, claim uh, made uh, in our confession that God does not have body, a body. He does not have parts. He does not have passions. And that's really what we are um, focusing in upon right here, that particular line in our confession of faith. Um, when when we say that God does not have passions, and I've also heard the word affections used sometimes synonymously, Uh, What do we mean when we say that God does not have passions? Yeah, that's an excellent and very important question. Passions and affections, treating them synonymously, are – we can think of them as motions or movements. And they're movements either towards what you think is good. You move – you advance towards what you think is good and they're movements away from what we think 
is bad. So you're drawn to the good and I guess drawn away or, or repulsed, pushed away from the things that you think are bad. And when you therefore encounter something that is good and you perceive it to be good, you encounter an object and you perceive it to be good, you think that it's good, you are drawn to it. And that's a passion. That's an affection. When you see something and you're repulsed by it and it pushes you away, that is also a passion and affection. It's a movement. It's a motion. And what has just happened is that you have been acted upon. You've been acted upon by an object outside of you that you encountered and it, it changed your disposition. It changed the way that you act. It changed the way that you think. You were drawn in one direction to something you thought was good. You were pushed away into another, another direction by something you thought was bad. So passions and affections are those, those movements and those motions towards what we think is good and away from what we think is bad. And an easy way to sort of illustrate that is to, to picture yourself at a buffet and there's a whole spread of food before you. Now, you're holding your plate and you have all the food ahead of you. Which ones will you go to and which ones will you put on your plate? You're going to be you're going to look at them. You're going to smell them. Hopefully you won't touch them. <laughs> and as you look at the, all that food, there are some things that you will be drawn to and you'll put on your plate. There's other things that you will skip or avoid and not put on your plate. Well, you're, you're experiencing the passions of, in a sense, love and hate. Love being drawn towards something that is good. Hate being repulsed by something that you think is bad. And you have been changed, really, by that buffet. You have been changed by the, that food food and it all depends on you encountering those objects and it all depends on how you interpret those objects to be good or bad. And so when we talk about God being impassable, we're saying that God it's the it's the culmination of a, of a variety of doctrines, but it's saying that because God is eternal and he's not bound by time and because God is, is perfect and unchangeable, there's nothing that acts upon God. God does not encounter something, decide whether it's good or bad, and then make a motion towards it or away from it. God is not in flux. God is not in motion in, in those senses. He is, he is what he is. He, we call that pure act. He is all that he is. Whatever is in God is God. Uh, everything that is in God is in God. Nothing is in God but God. There's a whole bunch of these phrases that the Reformed have used to, to say God is God. And he's, he's simple. He's not made up of multiple things. And so he either is what he is or he doesn't exist. And he can't be therefore changed. You can't add something to God. You can't take something away from him, which is what passions and affections are. We move through different states of being. We move through different uh, emotions and, and, and such things when we are affected or when we undergo, that's where passion comes from is to undergo something. We're affected or we undergo the experience of encountering things we perceive to be good or things that we perceive to be evil or, or to be bad, excuse me. And so we've already seen kind of how love and hate works. You're drawn to what you feel is good. You're repulsed by what you think is bad. And, and so also uh, courage and fear. You encounter an object, perhaps it, it comforts you. And so you're you are drawn to it. Perhaps it scares you. And so you're pushed away from it. Uh, and, and so also uh, we could talk about anger and and peaceableness and things like that. When you perceive something as good, you are at peace with it and drawn to it. When you perceive something as bad, it perhaps it makes you angry. And, and so all of these affections and passions sort of are opposites 
where you encounter objects and perceive them as good and are drawn to them or you perceive them as bad and you are repulsed by them. And we're saying God is not like that because he's not a creature. He's not made up of, of parts. He is eternal. He is perfect. He is pure essence. And we should be thankful for that. But we'll talk about that soon. So we have passions and we have affections. Is that is that something that's wrong about us? Is that inherently evil then? Or is it good that we have passions and affections? I, I grew up in a tradition, Sam, and I think I even used to talk this way myself where, you know, I'd encourage people to be very passionate about Jesus, you know. Um, sure. But I think we need to think carefully about the, this too. Um, are our passions or affections good or evil? That is That is a great question. And it's a very important one because although we're going to deny passions and affections – uh, to God, nevertheless, we as creatures, I mean, we are so full of passions and affections, and they are not bad. They're not bad at all. They're simply creaturely. They are a feature of being created beings, of who we are as God has made us. And so passions and affections in and of themselves are not bad things. It's our capacity to encounter things, interpret them, and respond and react to them. Passions and affections become bad in the sense that we misinterpret what is good and what is bad. And so therefore we we love the wrong things and we hate the wrong things. And of course, because of the fall, because of Adam's sin, all mankind has their minds darkened. So they, they don't properly understand what is right and what is wrong. In fact, they suppress and subvert what is right and what is wrong. They intentionally call good bad and bad good. And also, not only is their mind darkened, but their will is enslaved. They are, they are inclined towards evil, and they will do evil. And so man's passions and affections are not bad in and of themselves. They are simply creaturely elements, but they become bad when we wrongly interpret what is good and what is bad, and then we pursue the bad, calling it good, and we are repulsed by the good, calling it evil. And if we think about ourselves so many times – we see this in our own lives where temptation comes our way and we see something that we know is bad, but because there's some pleasure or enjoyment in it, so we think, we call it good and we are drawn towards it. Satan did this t to Eve. He, he caused her to consider the goodness of the apple uh, to be eaten, saying, you know, what, what could be wrong with this? It's a, it's a good apple. And so something that God had, had forbidden – Satan made it look good and because it was good, she was drawn towards eating the apple. And we do we do the same thing when we sin. We decide that there is some better something better than God, something better than God's law, something better than righteousness and holiness, and we we go for that. So to answer the question, we do have passions and affections. That's not a bad thing, that's just a creaturely thing. What we have to do is to rightly order our affections, to use older language. And we order it so that what God says is good, that's what we pursue. And what God says is evil, that is what we, we shun or run away from. And so in, in Colossians, when Paul says, set your minds on things uh, above, uh, older translation said, set your affections on things above. Because they were saying, they're saying, Paul's telling us to assign value 
based on who God is and what he has revealed to us. And so we need to affect or set our affections on those things that God has told us are good, those things of above. And we need to oppositely run away from those things that are from below, those things that are sinful, things that we should be repulsed by. And then Paul goes on in Colossians 3, of course, to talk about putting to death the sin within us and growing in the new man, the, the nature, the new nature that we have as new creations in Jesus Christ. And so passions and affections are so very important for the Christian life. Well, they're a part of creaturely life, but they're so very important for the Christian life when God has renewed our minds and he has freed our wills so that we can truly know what is good and we can choose it and we can obey him from the heart. And that is what we need to do. Being drawn to God is the ultimate good and everything that he tells us uh, included within that. That's wonderful, Sam. I appreciate that. Uh, So passions and affections are creaturely things. Uh, They're not necessarily evil, but might be good. But because we're all bent out of shape, we need to have them reordered according to God and his his word. Absolutely. Uh, To use the food analogy again, to go back to the buffet, I think it is important for people to recognize that you can, over time and with diligence, change your appetite. Uh, I think everyone has found this, if they've tried a diet, you know, at first foods that were very unappealing to them. Um, you know they 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 abstain from them, but over time, because they decided to make good choices, those foods all of a sudden become appealing to them because they know that they're good now. And the same is true, I think, in the Christian life. But I know that some disagree with this doctrine, the doctrine of divine impassibility, and this idea that God does not have passions or affections as we do, and they disagree with it, saying, uh, "But what about those passages of Scripture?" that describe God as having human-like passions or affections. Uh, so I think maybe, for example, we can take Genesis 6, 6 through 7, where we read, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That passage is filled with um, uh, passionate language, isn't it? Uh, creaturely language. Yes. Uh, so I guess the question is, why can't we just take this passage of Scripture and others like it on face value and say, well, the Bible does say that God has passions? How would you reply? That is an excellent question because this person – this objector is looking at the scriptures and they're they're trying to understand God as he has revealed himself in his word. And so it's it's a good question to ask. But the reason that we can't just take those scripture texts on face value is because there are other scripture scripture passages that strongly affect the way that we understand uh, who God is and his the nature of his being. And so other passages describe God in a way that makes it impossible for him to experience affections or passions. And in fact, there's other passages of scripture that specifically bring up things like repentance and regret and where God himself says, I'm not a man. I don't repent in numbers and in first Samuel, especially in first Samuel in the same sort of section of scripture, you get 
both a statement that God repented or regretted that he had made Saul, and then later uh, the statement that God is not a man, that he should repent. And, and so those other passages that that say, no, because of the nature of God, God does not regret, God does not repent, it will cause us not to just take on face value other passages that describe him in the language of regret and repentance. And so it's it's a comparison of Scripture with Scripture which means that we're not refusing to believe one and, and, and believing the other, but rather we harmonize them to say that God himself has told us not to read those statements, not to understand those statements as sort of a, a one-to-one exact description of God in his being. Rather, they describe other things to us, which we will talk about in, in just a moment. So we can't take them on face value because other passages of scripture tell us not to. If we did, we would have a blatant contradiction with, within the scriptures. And so we allow scripture to interpret uh, scripture. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this, Sam. We, we run into something like this also in those passages where God is described as having um, uh, human-like body parts too, don't we? Um, Absolutely. Uh, where God is said to have a strong uh, right arm or – where Moses saw the backside of God um, mm-hmm. or God's face, you know, is referred to. And I, I, I think a lot of Christians do kind of intuitively know, uh, recognize there that there's something going on that right. um, we can't just take uh, those passages in a literal fashion because they do know that God is not made up of, of, of body body parts, Um um, but is a most pure spirit, and so they realize that something needs to be done there in order to harmonize Scripture. Um, it seems to be a little bit more difficult for people to recognize that sometimes when it comes to these um, the, the passions and affections that are attributed to God in Scripture. So, Absolutely. How That's are, a very important point. How are we to understand the passages of Scripture then that do attribute human emotion to God, if indeed he does not really experience emotion. I think some might say, then what, are these passages just, are, are they meaningless? Are, are they worse than that, untrue and misleading? How are we to understand these texts that do attribute human emotion to God? Right, and this is this is really the biggest question in many ways, because, you know, if you start to deny this and you deny that, people say, okay, well, well what's left? What What is actually being said? And part of the problem is that we, we, we so readily assume the things that aren't true, and so we think that it's so difficult to, to find the pieces that are true. But, but let me get to, to the answer, really. The, the main thing that happens when God is described in language of repentance is that what we see is, is successive effects of God's decree. So we already believe that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, that nothing is, God's not making things up as he goes. Not Time is not God constantly putting things together, but rather God has, has decreed that which will come, uh, that which will come to pass. And so when we see A happen and then B happen and then C happen, they are the successive effects of God's decree. And think about Nineveh. God decreed to threaten Nineveh, and it was that threat that effectively changed them to repent to him. And then God removed that threat because they repented. And so when we talk about repentance, repentance is to stop doing what you were, what you were doing and to start doing something else. God threatened to destroy 
and then he removed the threat to destroy. And so that can be called repentance. But we do not bring along with that repentance all of the sort of emotional baggage of creaturely existence. God can say, I have set up Saul as king. Now I am removing Saul from king. And that is a repentance. It is a stopping of one thing and a starting of an opposite thing, a going in an opposite direction. And that also is a repentance. And God created man. Uh, Man changes. Man is exceedingly wicked. And so God will now destroy man. In, In all of those repentance passages, God's actions stop and then do a, re- a reverse. And it's usually in the very, which is, which is all decreed by God. He decrees to appoint Saul and to remove Saul. He decrees to threaten Nineveh and then to, to remove, well, really simply to not pour out judgment because they changed. And, and all those cases are the same where God presents something to us as if this, then that to change us. And then the, the that doesn't happen because God changed us and we don't experience. So God says to us, you know, if um, – think about the warning passages in, in books in Hebrews and things like that. You know, if you deny the son, this judgment will come upon you. Well, what happens is believers – run to Christ because they say, no, I don't want to deny the son. And unbelievers run from Christ. They run away from him because they are denying him. And so God's God's threats uh, cause things to happen. And it's not God waiting to see what is what will happen. And so when we see God described in the language of human emotion, we need to focus on what happens. What are the actions of God in this passage? And that is the focus. They describe to us what God did, and they use the language of human emotion oftentimes in order to communicate that to us. Another thing that we can think about when we see God described in passages uh, that use human emotional language to describe God is that oftentimes they describe God, but we need to understand what it's saying as being even better in God. So for example, if we think about God being loving or God being merciful, um, we don't say, okay, well then God has no love. And we don't say, well, okay, then God has no mercy because clearly God has no passions and affections. So what do these mean? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment, but we're going to see that those passages actually speak about something that is in God that is so much greater than what we know as love and so much greater than what we know as mercy, which I think can can really help us uh, to to balance the, the ship. On the one hand, we're saying, yeah, he doesn't regret, he doesn't repent. And people might say, okay, well then, does that mean there's no love and, and no real mercy? And we say, no, that's not true. In fact, there's so much more that we can say about God's love and God's mercy. In your book, you do call this the way of eminence and negation, and I think those are really helpful uh, terms. I would encourage people to grab the book and to read um, it all. And in particular, I think that section is very helpful. Um, would you – you've already done it, Sam, and I hope I don't force you to be too repetitive here, but um, would you maybe define what you mean by the way of eminence and negation in your book? Yes. Uh, I know you've already given kind of a summary of it right now, but – if you could define those terms, because I think they're very helpful. Yeah. If, if we ask, how do we know God or how do we describe him? We look at virtues that are in creatures, like creatures are, uh, they can be just and loving and, and kind and merciful and things like that. And we, we would say that love in God is, is perfect. And so he is eminently greater 
than any virtue in creatures. You, you think of a virtue in creatures and you ascribe it to God eminently and perfectly and supremely. It's not, uh, it's not that his love is the same as ours and things like that, but eminently greater. And so we take human language and ascribe it to God by way of eminence. And then there's other things where we look at creatures and we see their weaknesses or their imperfections and we, we, we negate that of God. We deny that God has those things. And so our capacity to change, we look at that and we say, no, that is not in God. And so we negate that. We, we, we see creaturely elements or creaturely imperfections, creaturely weaknesses and defects, and we negate them. And, and by removing from God the creaturely imperfections, we more clearly know, know him to be what he is. He is not this. He is not that. And so we talk about him being immutable and impassable and immortal and invisible and, and such things. They are, they're really negations. They deny something, but by denying things, they more clearly describe God for us. So eminence is looking at something virtuous and saying it's in God in a more, in an ext- in, in the most perfect way according to who and what God is. And then we take the way of negation to say that God is is beyond the imperfections of creatures, not just their virtues, but also their imperfections. And, and through those two things, the way of eminence and negation, we more clearly know God. Okay. I think that's helpful. I, I was even thinking of um, how we call God Father. And uh, we have to do this sort of thing even with that uh, most wonderful name for God, you know, our Father mm. who art in heaven. Um, that's really a, 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 a human term, isn't it? The, the term right. of Father. We have earthly fathers, so we know something of what it means to be a father. But when we call God Father, we also know that we we are referring to him as our Heavenly Father and, and the one who is perfect, uh, the, the perfect Heavenly Father and not prone to the weaknesses that yeah. our earthly fathers do have, that we ourselves that's- have. That's a good illustration, and it reminds us that we, we don't trap God in our language. We call him a father, but we don't reduce him, therefore, right. to the human concepts of fatherhood, which is exactly what you were saying, but it, we can apply that principle on so many levels. Okay, yes, use this language to describe God, and you describe him truly, mm-hmm. but you're not describing him fully. You're not getting at everything that is God uh, when you use those words. And so we use them rightly so, but we have to realize God is so much better than the language that we use because our, our language is stuck in, in creature experience and creature expression. Great. We have to be mindful of that whenever we're speaking of God. We have to strip away the human elements uh, that Correct. are um, attached to the language that we use. I, I've, I've also heard some bristle at this doctrine um, saying that, well, this this teaching really makes our God out to be uh, cold and, and distant and impersonal. So they hear that God does not have passions or affections like we have, and they begin, I guess, to, to say, well, then he cannot be relational. He can't relate to us. And, and what is he then? Just this kind of you know, cosmic rock who is forever unmoved and uh, you know, is he cold and distant like that? And uh, would you address that, Sam? You already have a bit, but I think it'd be good yeah. just to address that cr- question directly. Certainly, and it's an understandable question because, like you said at the beginning, this is not a very well-known doctrine, and because our knowledge is so limited by our creaturely experience, it, it's hard to understand talking about 
the God who is so far beyond us. So uh, to this person who might ask this kind of question, I want to say, I understand where you're coming from and I can understand how you could get that impression. But I would hope that when they hear the answer to this question, they would rejoice in it because yes, we deny that God has passions and affections, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have love. It means that his love is not a passion that arises based on his encountering of objects he perceives as good and but rather his love is a perfection. It is what God is. God is not just loving. God is love. Love is what God is. And so God's God's perfections, therefore, become the comfort for his people, that his love is not something that can be created and removed. It's not something that can be provoked and abated, but rather it is a perfection. And so God does not become less loving. God becomes the most loving. His love is eternal. His love is perfect. His love is unchanging. His love is incapable of change. A way to put it is just to say his love is impassable. And think about us as human beings, even even in the best marriage, in the best relationship, you can you can pledge love for your spouse. And, and love is certainly far more than emotions. But thinking of the emotional side of love, when your spouse does something that bothers you or something that angers you, you you will stop perceiving that person as good in that moment, in that particular context and under those certain circumstances and you've been provoked by them. You you suddenly view them as bad or you view them as an annoyance or, or a, a difficulty or, or whatever it is and your love has just diminished and rather you have become angry or annoyed or, or, or any variety of passions and affections that deal with objects that you perceive as bad. And so your love can can be pretty easily actually your love can pretty easily be provoked and your love can pretty easily be extinguished people bring you a piece of chocolate cake and wow you're best friends now you've been bought off your love has just been purchased you know people can punch you in the face and guess what you don't love them anymore and so your love is a passion it depends on how you perceive other people god's love is his essence god's love is who he is it is a perfection, an unchanging, eternal, perfect, uh, well, a a perfect perfection is a redundancy, but you know what I mean. And so does this make God out to be cold and distant and impersonal? No, it just makes him out to not be a creature. And so he's so much better. His love will never change. He will never cease to be loving because if he ceased to be loving, he'd cease to be God because God is love. And so really we find that Impassibility shows us that God is not distant and cold and impersonal, but so far beyond ourselves and everything we have ever known. Think about mercy. We are merciful when our hearts are moved by something that that causes us to pity. Uh, And the problem is that the things that cause us to feel pity oftentimes are those things that we that we see some kind of reward for us in. So do we feel pity for the person that it would take a lot of work for us to help them out? Oftentimes we don't. We don't we're not very merciful to that person. But when we see a puppy, 
that is very easy to adopt and that gives you such wonderful love and comfort, you feel very merciful towards that puppy. And so our mercy is dependent on rather selfish interpretations of what is good and what is bad. Whereas God's mercy is not his heart, like feeling something with us, but rather his mercy is a determination to help the helpless. His mercy is an un, uh, an unmoved, uh, a fixed determination to help the helpless. And we don't even give anything back to God. We don't even, uh, he does not receive some kind of reward as though we could add to him. And so his love is better. His His mercy is better. All In all of these ways, we find that though our love is, is good and our mercy is good, it's creaturely, it's limited. And God's love and God's mercy is infinite and eternal and perfect. And so it's, it's so wonderful and comforting for us. I think one of the phrases that appeared in, in your book uh, that I found very helpful, and it was a quote from someone else, and I don't have it in front of me, so I can't give them credit, but it's this idea that those things that are affections or passions with us are perfections in God. And so we're not uh, taking anything away from God when we say that he is without passions. We, we are Correct. actually saying that he, he is these things uh, to, to the uttermost, right? Uh, to the, Absolutely. In and in our confession, in, in that same paragraph, it goes on to say that God is most loving. Mm-hmm. And that's the way of eminence that we discussed is we take human love, we clean it up from its its passion, its affection, its creaturely nature, and we ascribe it to God and we say he's the most loving. Could he be any more? No, he's the most. Could he be any less? No, he's the most. And so that to say that God is most loving is to call his love a perfection. And therefore, he does not have the passion of love. He has the perfection of love. And, and it's not that there is some perfection of love that God participates in. God is love. He is the perfection of love. It is his very essence. How does the incarnation uh, help us uh, in in this whole conversation? I guess there's two ways you could go with this, Sam. But uh, first of all, in helping us to see that uh, this does not make God distant and cold and um, one who does not relate. Um, And if you would like, I guess you could go into what you deal with in the book, too, about how uh, the dual nature of Christ does help us here. But Uh, What about the issue of God being distant and cold, and how does the incarnation help us uh, understand this? That's another good question. On the one hand, uh, we would want to say, well, we've already answered that objection regarding God. But in the incarnation, we see two natures united in one person. And there's a divine nature, and there is a human nature. And so the divine nature remains impassable, And yet the human nature is a true human nature, the human nature of Christ. And so Jesus Christ had and indeed has, but uh, glorified, has passions and affections. And so Jesus Christ has uh, has human, has human love and human mercy. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every point as we have been and yet without sin. And so we can pray to Jesus in sort of a, a special way because he is he has our nature. He took on flesh for us and he had he he wept and he became angry because there is when you're when you're angry you can be angry without sinning. 
we're even commanded to be angry and not to sin. Anger isn't necessarily bad if you're angry at things that are truly bad. And Jesus, he was rightly angry. He was rightly loving. He was rightly merciful. His passions and affections were perfectly ordered. They were perfectly um, – he perfectly understood good and evil and he perfectly responded and reacted to those things and he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has a true human nature. And so it's a, a wonderful, really, union in that we can go to God because he is perfect and eternal and impassable and pray to him because he is love. And in addition to that, we can go to, to Jesus Christ in his human nature and, and have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So, I mean, we, we have everything. And God is so good to us that that we can we can pray with such freedom, we can pray with such confidence, uh, not only because of who God is, but also because of who Jesus Christ is through the incarnation. That's very helpful. The last question I want to ask you, Sam, is why does this doctrine matter? And I think we need to ask it because some, when they begin to dig into this doctrine, they see it as a being you know very technical and, and academic, especially when you. Um, kind of dive deeply into conversations about the nature of God and then the nature of man and how we are made up of parts, but God is not, you know, it, it gets rather technical. And right. after a while, I think people do begin to look at this and to go, what's the point? I mean, does it even matter? Why do we need to talk about these, um, mm-hmm. uh, th- these uh, detailed things and these complex things? But I, I was reminded of the fact that this doctrine matters greatly just by, you know, um, uh, rereading your book and, and thinking about these things over the last few days, um, man, these these doctrines uh, do matter. They should prompt us to praise. They should bring confidence to us. And indeed, that did happen to me anew and afresh as I was considering these things this week. But would you speak to this? Why does this doctrine matter then practically uh, to the Christian? It, it matters greatly because if God can change, then what what do we trust in and why do, why do we bother trusting? Uh, That's one of the most basic questions. But let's be more specific and think about how this doctrine matters in the way that we preach the gospel, in the way that we assure our hearts of our salvation, and in the way that we persevere in suffering. So when when we preach the gospel, we don't just publish the good news of Christ's substitution and his death and resurrection. We also declare why that's necessary because man is sinful and because there is punishment coming for for wicked and sinful man. And we often say things like the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon sinners and they will perish eternally in their sins. Now, the word wrath is a word for a, a passion or an affection. In fact, a very intense one, wrath. So if if God's wrath is a passion, does that mean that he's kind of like a mob boss and he is really mad with us, but you know, he could be bought off. His wrath could go away. His wrath could dissipate. His wrath could cease. No, his, his wrath isn't like that. Rather, wrath is a way of using human language to describe the invincibility of God's justice, that because God is holy, because God is holiness, because God is just, because God is justice, there remains no doubt whatsoever that so long as we remain wicked, so long as we remain sinful, we are in relation to a holy and just God, we will surely be punished. And that invincible condemnation, that invincible uh, 
punishment that would flow from God's justice and holiness. We call that wrath so that people understand the intensity of it and the invincibility. And what I mean by invincibility is it can't be conquered. It can't be stopped. It can't be overcome. There's nothing that you can do to, to stop God's justice and holiness from being poured out upon you so long as you remain wicked. And if God is passable, if his wrath is changeable in some way, then we cannot preach that. We cannot say that God will certainly and definitely punish the wicked. And the flip side of that is we say, you cannot change God. God is holy and God is just, but God can change you. He can make you holy and just like he is holy and just. And because God is holy and just, if you are righteous, he must approve you. Just as his holiness and his righteousness and his justice must disapprove of the wicked, so also his holiness and his justice and his righteousness must approve the righteous. And so, so long as we are righteous, we know that God will surely approve of us. And then what do we say? Well, we say, well, but we're not righteous. And how do we, how do we become righteous? And for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, who, who receive him by faith and rest in him by faith, they acquire his Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to them. Their wickedness is washed away in his blood and his perfect righteousness robes them and clothes them so that they in God's eyes are perfectly righteous. And so then what do we say to them? Well, we say to them, because you are perfectly righteous by faith in Christ, you know without any doubt, you know with all certainty that God's unchangeable righteousness, God's unchangeable holiness, God's invincible justice approve you. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And there is therefore nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But if God's love is passable, if God's love is a passion, then you could say, well, right now, boy, God really loves you, but his love could change if you could change. Uh, and, you know, if he decides that you're not good or if you're bad, you know, I mean, we could come up with all sorts of somewhat even silly scenarios to talk about how God's love would not really be much of a thing to trust in. But because his love is impassable, it's unchangeable, it can't be acted upon, and God can't change it himself. He's not acting upon himself to change his love. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And because we are perfectly righteous, God's righteousness approves us. And that becomes a foundation for the new believer to where for the rest of their life, when they suffer or when they sin, they can know that even when they experience affliction and even when they experience discipline from God, they know that God's not in a bad mood and they know that God has not ceased to love them, but rather they know that afflictions that are permitted and discipline that is sent comes from a loving father, not an annoyed magistrate. You again, really this time, all right, well, deal with this. No, because that's not, God is not like that. God is not just loving. God is love. He can never cease to be love. And so he may cause us to feel less of that love in order to discipline us, in order to cause us to long for him more and to seek him with renewed obedience. But he has not changed. He changes us. He's not just holy. He is holiness. And he draws us to himself. 
And so in the middle of our affliction or when we, when we sin, do we say, man, you know, I sinned again. I can't, I can't go to God. What's he going to think of me? You need to go to first John three and say, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. His knowledge never changes. What is his knowledge that Christ died for you, that Christ's salvation was applied to you. And so there's no change in God and our hearts cannot condemn us. They can convict us. Yes, we are guilty of many sins, but we're not condemned for them. Rather, we have a loving father who has forgiven our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he will never cease to be lo- to love us because he is love. And so this, this doctrine really, really, really matters because it assures us on the one hand of the certain end of the wicked, on the other hand, the certain salvation of those who trust in Christ and forevermore the ongoing and eternal love of God for his children. So to me, anyway, as far as I can tell, or as far as I can see it, this doctrine matters immensely. It is the foundation of our confidence. Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And so really all of our confidence does rest upon uh, God and the fact that he is unchanging. Amen. I think that's very well said, Sam. Um, I really appreciate the work you've put into this. Uh, again, I think you've uh, you've done a good work to say, to take something that's complex and make it understandable and simple. And I do pray that um, that Christians, you know, would really value this doctrine and come to understand it, and and that their faith would grow more strong as they come to see God not as someone who is capricious and moody, you know, sometimes right. pleased with them and sometimes not, but one who is unchanging. Um, who we can stand upon as our rock-solid foundation. Amen. Do you ever grow tired of talking about this, uh, Sam? (laughs) No, because like I just said, I mean, every time I preach the gospel, I'm relying on these truths. And every time I counsel someone in the church, I'm relying on these truths. So it's everything. His mercies are new every morning because his mercy flows from himself and doesn't depend on me and the world around me. Our God is good. He is perfect in every way, and we do worship and praise him. Um, Wow, wonderful stuff. Well, I do want to say to the listener, thank you for um, listening to this particular episode. Um, It's been a long time since we've published one, and I keep talking about wanting to do them regularly, and the demands of pastoral ministry and family life uh, seem to prohibit me from doing so. But um, I think this one, uh, it's important at least for our people to hear, and so I, I do uh, hope that you benefit from it. And do check back uh, with some regularity. Hopefully we'll grow more consistent in publishing episodes on this uh, on this podcast. So until then, abide in Christ. <laughs>